We are turning back in the word of the Lord to 2 Peter chapter 2. Toward the end of this chapter now, um, we will uh, pick up in verse 18 and uh, just have the section before us about the empty promises of liberty and the fact of Christian license. From 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. For when they, the false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Well, let us pray. We pray again, our Father, that that truth should set us free, that you would give us wisdom to know how to speak that truth in love to those whom we know who are pursuing not a life of truth, but a life of license, not a life of godliness, but a life that wanders far from you. We pray that Christian liberty would be enjoyed by, by, at a greater degree to each one, and that we would understand your will and way for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Valery Selenev grew up in the Soviet Union. He was a ranking Communist Party member in the Ministry of Agriculture. And this is how his wife, Valentina, describes their life together. Quote, Growing up, we thought that we were living in the happiest, most prosperous nation on earth. But we were totally brainwashed. We were told that there was a bad world full of capitalists out there, and that we were therefore to worship Stalin and to trust in our government, no matter what. Uh, Valerie and Valentina's parents worked for the party as well, and there was never a question about what direction that their children should take because uh, Valerie had risen to a certain position in the Ministry of Agriculture. He was asked to travel around the world and to supervise the installation of Soviet-built equipment in foreign countries. It was 1988 when Valerie first left the Soviet Union to go to Toronto, become the first person from his whole city to travel overseas. He openly despised the West. But when he arrived, he experienced something that he simply couldn't believe. He writes, quote, Everyone was happy and prosperous, he said. They weren't forced to attend political meetings. And it wasn't until then that I understood how not free I really was. Of course, Valerie and his other officials were under strict control and supervision in Toronto, Nobody could walk by himself, Valerie said. And always, always we had to report on one another. When people were going, uh, where people were going, whom they were seeing. The KGB even rifled through the mail so that Valerie couldn't tell his wife or their teenage daughter Natalia about all the amazing things he was experiencing. I couldn't even describe grocery stores filled with beautiful vegetables and fruits. Eventually, his wife was allowed to visit also, but their daughter had to remain in the Soviet Union so that there would be no chance of them defecting or stepping out of line. His wife said, 
Neither Valerie nor I was a Christian at the time. In fact, since I was a teacher, it was my job to promote atheism. But she became curious. She said, I stole a Bible from a library in Toronto. Well, I didn't steal it so much as borrow it forever. But she says, I I couldn't buy a copy. There were too many curious eyes watching. So hidden in the stack of books, it slipped right past the KGB. When Valerie got home, she says, he found me reading and crying. Why did they lie to us? I asked him. Why did they say this was a bad book? I became a believer then and was so thirsty. I read the Bible three times while we were there. When the Soviet Union began to crumble in 1991, they were able to get a flight to America and apply for asylum. Uh, Today, um, she works in Charles Stanley's office as an executive assistant for In Touch, and her husband does custodial work there. He says that uh, what he does today is a far cry from that prominent position he once held, but he couldn't care less. Why, you asked? Because he says, quote, I'm free. I start with their story to get you to think. How do you know that you are free? I mean, is freedom just a feeling? Is the feeling of total freedom the same as being free? Are you really free even if you feel free? Sometimes people are held captive, you know, by the worst captivity there is. You know what that means? A willing captivity. A happy captivity, being a slave to your desire and enjoying a state of bondage, which is at the same time robbing you of God and of eternal life and true everlasting pleasure. Being even more deceived than that Soviet couple about what true freedom and happiness meant. It's possible for us to believe and internalize a lie so that like that couple, you think that you are the freest and happiest people on the earth, and all the time you don't know what freedom is, what happiness means. You are bound in slavery from the mind and heart, from the inside out. You've been told that it is freedom that you have, but inheriting perhaps from your parents or culture or the expectation of others, you want to be a slave. Now that is the worst kind of slavery there is. Jesus says, therefore, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He has something to tell us about real freedom and the true happiness that brings. He came on a mission of freedom to set the captives free. And so I'd like to have two points for you this evening from our passage. First, false teachers promise liberty that only Christ can give. And second, false teachers deliver slavery to corruption from which only Christ can set us free. Nothing uh, too uh, exciting or brilliant, I suppose, but I do want also to meditate on the lines that we were speaking this morning about what that means then for a society as well, especially as there's talk again for revival. Well, first, false teachers promise liberty that only Christ can give. False teachers promise liberty that only Christ can give. Speaking of the false teachers in verse 18, uh, Peter says, they speak great, swelling words of emptiness. Big words, nothing to it. Uh, In particular, verse 19, they promise liberty, a liberty they can't deliver. 
from chapter 3, by the way, we also learn that these false teachers are denying God's judgment. And they even mock, where is the promise of his coming? Since the beginning, everything's gone, all, gone along just as it has. And so Peter explains what they're, in fact, doing is enticing people through their own sinful desires. When you really want something, hmm, it is so easy for a false teacher to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I've explained before, but that little bit about the acceptable year, especially in context that he's quoting, is the, uh, is the year of jubilee, God having saved his people Israel out of bondage, having given, having given them a land of rest and safety and freedom, required them to have a special celebration every 50 years, a huge celebration of liberty, to proclaim liberty throughout the land, he says, that on the Day of Atonement, that 50th year, the trumpets were to sound and liberty was to be proclaimed to all the inhabitants. Everyone who had gone into slavery was to go free as on the, on the, seventh, as on the seventh year. Every debt in the land was canceled, debt set free. Everyone who had to sell their family land or house and was able to get it back for free. And all that year, nobody had to work in the fields or tend the vines. They were merely to eat of the abundance of what the Lord would make sure would grow and otherwise have a year off. Having such a national celebration of freedom, certainly at least once in a lifetime for most, in order to remember that God had given them liberty. Well, that acceptable year of the Lord is now, of course, fulfilled in Jesus, which is what he goes on to say. This verse is fulfilled in your hearing. By him, the slaves are set free. By him, the debts are forgiven. By him, the people that had uh, been cast away from the Lord's sight have now been brought back and, and, a, and given a kingdom and a God-given inheritance, a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. Jesus sets us free to captivity from evil desire. He forgives our sins. He makes us heirs to glory. The gospel is then the charter of our salvation. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed now from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He is our liberty. Christ's word is designed to transform us now and to shape us from the inside out, to tell us what true freedom really is, to give us the joy of that freedom, to transform us in our loves, in our hatreds, our attitudes, our convictions, our behavior in life, root and branch, from the inside out. False, false teachers point to deliver slavery to corruption from which only Christ can set us free. And what a blessing this is, uh, not only to us, but even to whole societies when many people experience that emancipation. And let me think for a few minutes now uh, with uh, what it means on a larger scale. We, we, I mentioned this morning how that uh, Ulster revival had such a powerful effect um, in uh, that country, uh, bringing crime to a sudden halt, how uh, Christ's kingdom, when it rapidly advances, has a tremendous effect on the kingdoms of this world. For when people are self-governed by righteous desires, they don't need threats and intimidation. And it's uh, then, as happened many times in this country, that we can live in the land of the free. We have not always enjoyed the same level of freedom. Things have gone up and down. But the Lord has been pleased several times to send mighty revivals. And with those revivals comes a revival of liberty. For Christianity is the only force known to history 
that has simultaneously freed entire nations from corruption while giving them political freedom. For when God rules in the heart of a significant number of people, a country will enjoy economic liberty, prosperity, productivity, security, relative freedom from fear and regulation. And when this does not happen, all those liberties must give way and misery and corruption seem unavoidable. If the heart is corrupt, the society will grow more corrupt. Patrick Henry gave us a warning speaking about that war for independence. He said, bad men can't make good citizens. It's when people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. A declining state of morals and a corrupted public conscience is incompatible with freedom, end quote. Now, frankly, I I don't like the tremendous increase of government uh, regulation and overreach uh, probably any more than you probably do. But my point is, unless people are, in fact, self-governed from the heart and mind through a willing submission to the Word of God, uh, practically the only alternative in history has been more regulation, more oppression, uh, a kind of heavy-handedness under which we all squirm. In the same way, I don't like most of the wealth redistribution policies that have been passed in our generation, but as I've mentioned before, secularists, for their part, are terribly stingy. That is to say, Bible Belt states have a very high per capita giving to charity across the board, relatively speaking. The least generous states are those secular states in the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. And so understand, if you do not have a caring, generous populace, it's no wonder that the government will step in and do very inefficiently and very impersonally what Christian people used to do abundantly out of love. A costly redistribution of wealth or even a Marxist influence is almost guaranteed to fill such an aching void. So William Penn was quite correct to warn, if we will not be governed by God, we must be governed by tyrants. Or some of you know Alexis de Tocqueville, that French observer and admirer of American democracy, he wrote, Despotism may be able to do without faith, but democracy cannot. How is it possible, he writes, that society should escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened in proportion as the political tie is relaxed? Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. End quote. Very striking how much of these people during that era of our uh, country's birth reflected on these things. That's why, as I say, I said earlier, the revolution of the 60s changed life, practically speaking, more than that revolution of 1776, which was in so many ways a conservative reaction. But let me remind you of my favorite illustration of this, I think, as I mentioned it uh, at least five years ago as I went back and looked. I hope I'm right about that. Vishal Manglawati, uh, his book uh, that I've uh, recommended to you. He's got videos now, by the way, on Amazon, on, on YouTube. Um, the, the thick book that he wrote is called The Book That Made Your World. He, he points out, as somebody who's come from the East to the West, our nations are totally different. And it's not that uh, Anglos are in so many ways uh, superior, uh, that Northern Europeans, the uh, Americans, having some uh, superior virtue to his native Indians. As a matter of fact, he says for for quite a long time, India had a far more moral and a superior culture to the West 
until that revolution hit, right? Uh, the revolution called the Protestant Reformation. Well, he describes in the book how the liberty of the individual, when uh, multiplied, becomes the foundation of liberty of a free society. Quote, when the light of Christ comes in and begins to dwell in us, inner darkness will be driven out. Um, in other words, he writes, Jesus does what no dictator can do. A dictator could punish me for taking a bribe. But Jesus deals with the greed in my heart that prompts me to cover, uh, excuse me, that prompts me to covet other people's money. A dictator could punish me for abusing my wife. Jesus, if he dwells in my heart, convicts me and leads me to repent. He also gives me power to love. Islam and Christianity share in common the idea of moral absolutes. The difference is that Allah is too majestic to come into a dirty manger or to fill a filthy heart. But by cleansing us from the inside, Jesus makes possible inner self-government. And he says, let me give you an example. In the early 80s, Vishal was traveling to a conference in England, a conference on economic development. He was doing some work in that in his own home country of India. He was involved in a Christian ministry that was trying to bring both the gospel and practical change and help to the Indian countryside. On the plane, Vishal was sitting next to a Sikh gentleman from India who was talking nonstop, he said, and, and who could not comprehend why Vishal chose to live in poverty, serving the poor in India. And he took it upon himself to persuade Vishal that he needed to relocate and settle in England. He said, doing business in England is so easy and so profitable. Tell me, sir, Vishal asked, why is business so easy in England? Because everyone trusts you there, he answered without hesitating for a moment. And Vishal didn't grasp what the man meant until after his conference, he went and visited his friend, John, uh, or Jan von Barneveld in Holland. Uh, Jan said one afternoon, come, let's get some milk, and uh, led him across the field to a local dairy farm. And Vishal stared with wide eyes, having never seen anything like it. There was a neat and tidy dairy farm where the cows were being milked automatically, without the need for human labor, and the milk was pumped into a large tank. He said, we entered the milk room, and Jan opened the tap and filled his jug. Then he pulled over a bowl full of cash. He threw in a 20-gilder note and made change from the bowl. He put the change in his wallet, picked up his jug, and started to leave. Man, said Vishal, if you were an Indian, you'd take the milk and the money. Jan just laughed. But in that instant, Vishal understood what the Sikh businessman had been trying to tell him. Vishal writes, if this were India, where they'd walk out with the money and the milk, the dairy owner would need to hire a cashier. And then who would pay for the cashier? I, the consumer, would, and the price of milk would go up. But if the consumer were corrupt, why should the dairy owner be honest? He would then add more water to the milk to make more money. And I would be paying more for adulterated milk. And I would complain, this milk is adulterated. The government must appoint inspectors. And who would pay for the inspectors? I, the taxpayer, would. But if the customer, producer, and supplier were corrupt, why should the inspectors then be honest? They would expect bribes from the suppliers. 
And if he did not bribe them, the inspectors would delay the supply to ensure that the milk curdled before it got to me. And who would be paying for the bribe? Again, ultimately, I, the consumer, would pay the additional cost. And so by the time I paid for the milk, the cashier, the water, the inspector, and the bribe, I would have little money left so my children would not get to drink much milk and we would be much weaker than the Dutch children. He says, this is the story of India. Right? And he goes on to say, some years ago I shared this story at a conference in Indonesia. An Egyptian participant laughed the most and as all eyes turned to him, he explained, we Egyptians are cleverer than the Indians. If no one were watching, we would take the milk the money, and the cows. <laughs> a few years after Vishal returned to India, he heard his uncle complaining that they were getting such highly adulterated milk. Vishal said that uh, he had found in his village an honest milkman, and he was getting pure milk. His uncle laughed, and he wouldn't believe it. So for half an hour, Vishal tried to convince his uncle to buy milk from his milkman, but his uncle dismissed him as totally naive. It is impossible to get pure milk, he said. Your milkman must be very clever. He must be adding something other than water to the milk, something yet you haven't figured out yet. At the end, he was unable to persuade him. So here in one city, Vishal points out, where there had been this Reformation legacy of 500 years of the application of the word of God to the people as a whole, uh, uh, honesty is assumed. In another city, where there is no such legacy, you cannot even convince people that there is a single honest man in the town. How did the ordinary country people in Holland become so very different from the ordinary country people in India or Egypt? And Vishal says, not, not just these countries, but you look all the way down the list from Transparency International, which ranks nations by corruption, and all the least corrupt countries are the Protestant countries, the places where the cultures were decisively shaped by the Bible for hundreds of years. The only exception being Singapore, which is, of course, a former British colony city-state, where still to this day over one-third of the government leaders are university graduates uh, and at least nominal Christians, and South Korea, the other exception. South Korea, as you'll probably know, that tiny nation that has been enjoying for 100 years now this remarkable Christian revival. All the rest of the nations on the top of the list are the Protestant nations. Amazing. And his point is, you lose that book. You will lose that world. And you will be like us. In conclusion, one of my fellow ministers, Neil Stewart, wrote, as a nation, we have forgotten God and seem determined only to remember ourselves. This life philosophy makes us little better than animals who live only to satisfy their baser appetites. And we mustn't be too hard on animals, of course. They have no higher appetites from which to choose. But as those made in the image of God, we really ought to do better. The politician offers little hope and even less constructive advice. The left prescribe the remedy of an even bigger government with more power to legislate and control the populace. The right 
proffered exactly the opposite as a remedy. What society really needs, they say, is a smaller government with more liberty for the people. Now, Neil writes, as a constitutional conservative, I have no desire for a bigger government. Very much the reverse is my preference. However, as our society continues to unravel, we do well to ponder what good adult liberties will be for infantile citizens. Wild animals may not be happy in pens, but they are neither tamed by wide open fields. The civil law has no power to fix the human heart, and liberty is little help to those mad enough to abuse it. Those people that promise you liberty with great swelling words today are not only in the church, they sit in our nation's capital, and they can deliver no more than what I have said. Jesus is the only way to true freedom. There is a lot more to freedom than not wearing chains.